Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As of this taping, COVID has killed more than 621,000 Americans and about 4.4 million worldwide. Meanwhile, Chinese airline capacity has collapsed and ownership of Britain's highly innovative defense and aerospace companies like Ultra and Megat, as well as even Babcock, are in flux. India airline orders and Boeing's decision to delay the much-anticipated launch of its Starliner spacecraft, destacking the launch vehicle for repairs. But most importantly, we're going to start this program to discuss the rapid collapse of the government in Afghanistan in the wake of the U.S. and allied withdrawal from the country, the Taliban now taking over or poised to take over Kabul as of this taping. Uh, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani has apparently fled the country as the United States works with the Taliban uh, to try to withdraw U.S. personnel, obviously thousands of troops arriving in the country uh, to withdraw some 3,000 or so U.S. uh, civilians. The plight of Afghans that we had promised to help remains uh, undecided as well. Joining us to discuss all these stories and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch from our New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, uh, now operating from Northern Italy, uh, and Richard Abalafi of the Teal Group Consultancy. Welcome back to DC. Uh, Richard, uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us. As always, Bago, uh, great to be here. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to be uh, in, in Italy. Thank you. Highlight of the week, Vago. Great to be back home in D.C. Indeed, uh, everybody. And Sash, I'm glad you got out. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Huntington Ingalls Industries and GE Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and uh, trade show. Ron? Let, you know, let's let's start with you. I mean, and the question that I want to put to all of you is uh, several trillions of dollars, uh, tens of thousands of American uh, and allied troops dead and wounded, uh, hundreds of thousands of Afghans uh, killed uh, in this conflict that began almost 20 years ago, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, it'll be 20 years in uh, about a month and a half, two months uh, since this started in the wake of 9-11. And the question I think everybody is asking themselves uh, on every level is what do we have to show for it? Um, the Taliban was in power. They will be back in power. Every area the Taliban has taken back. There have been rep- reprisal uh, killings. Uh, women have to wear burqas. Girls' schools are being closed. We're, we're pretty much going back to square one. From a defense industrial perspective, uh, was good for industry profits for a while, but, but that's been in the past. Uh, is it better surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, better data, big data, and AI capabilities. I kind of want to get a sense from all of you uh, where we are on that. Ron, why don't you start us off on uh, what what all this means in a, in a moment of, you know, defense, aerospace, industrial reflection? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I can really just focus on it from, from an investor perspective, right? I mean, um, like, like you suggested, uh, you, you had this run up into uh, the Afghan war the first time. Um, and I mean, it really was the beginning of a whole new defense sen- spending cycle. And, and if you look at where the defense budget's gone since the, uh, the uh, initial run up, um, it really hasn't gone back to where it was, right? Um, if you remember back to Bush 2's administration, there was a lot of talk about um, the budget going down. We were in an environment that was 
you know, talking about substituting technology for people and the budget being cut and everything got turned around, right? So if you just look at the overall defense spending posture of the, of the nation from the in, in initial endeavor in um, Afghanistan, I mean, every, everything has changed, right? And as you, I think, rightly pointed out, there's all kinds of lessons learned in terms of, you know, technologies and surveillance and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, I, I really can't you know, kind of in my position speak to, you know, the politics and this and that of it. Um, however, on a, on a go forward basis, you know, what, what I might add is it wasn't really all that incremental to any of the defense contractors. So I would expect outside of maybe some uncertainty that could bring to the market, um, it's you're not going to be a, a catalyst negative or positive for, for defense because it really wasn't at this point, at this juncture, um, all that material to any of the, the defense contractors. There's probably some contractors who had foots on the feet, foots, there you go, good, getting us feet on the ground in, um, uh, in, in Afghanistan that, you know, they'll feel this. But for, you know, most of my coverage and most of the public companies, it's not that, that, that big a deal um, after, from this point. And then, and then finally, um, you know, when you think about, you know, you know the, the, the broader budgetary pressures caused on, you know, just U.S. spending in general outside of just defense, I mean, everything given, given the pandemic, um, you know, this could be a source of funding that could be used in other places in defense or otherwise. So I guess, I guess those are my thoughts. I just want to point out, and I want to go to you, uh, Sash, in a minute, because you also have a deeper sort of personal uh, experience uh, with, with this war, um, given your, your reserve duties. Um, not not just as a as a as a leading defense uh, aerospace analyst and intellectual. I mean, I would point out. I think the the mission was several thousand people for about five billion dollars a year was the estimate on what um, what what the what the sort of sustainment cost would uh, for this would have been. But Sash, why don't you uh, give us your sense, and then Richard, I want to get your take as well. Yeah, I, I look. I completely agree with Ron financially. So from the point of view of all the companies that we looked at. You know, what I would describe as being the good times for our companies, it was nearly a decade ago. Actually, the best time for the companies that we cover was when uh, we were fighting two simultaneous wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, when there were huge numbers of urgent operational requirements because uh, we had uh, suddenly got to face very, very asymmetric threats. And therefore, you know, that, that was the era of the MRAP, frankly, the, uh, when money was thrown at um, heavy, dumb armor protection, uh, or you know, protection wheels, or or for the soldiers themselves, and there was huge amounts of spending on some of the arguably crudest stuff around. You know, small arms ammunition was being fired off at a million rounds a day, um, and uh, the factories that made it across the whole of the West could not do that fast enough. But that was a decade ago, um, and now. Well, we're basically, we're, we're, we're actually post hangover financially. None of the companies that I cover, and I expect none of the companies that, that Ron and Richard look at, have got a, you know, a material by which I mean a 5%, 10% line in them uh, for, um, uh, you know, the benefit that they're getting from or that they were getting from operations in Afghanistan. It's absolutely uh, tiny now. And I think all of our companies have moved on. So, you know, what, what is the sort of the macro uh, impact of this incredibly sad and I think politically very important issue? I mean, first of all, uh, and, and this is probably the most positive um, thing that we can talk about from this, is ending the war in Afghanistan is going to make funding the two competitions that 
the West has decided really matter, which is China and Russia, just that bit easier because there's going to be no fiscal drag from Afghanistan. Um, I'm, I realise that's trying to make a, a very, very positive point out of a politico-social catastrophe, but um, not having uh, the you know, operations abroad that were just sucking money from defence budgets, certainly in the US, but frankly also you know, in the UK, Germany, and a lot of other coalition nations, um, that money will be able to be spent on, on, on the stuff that matters. That's good. What isn't good? I think most of the lessons we draw or uh, drew from operations in Afghanistan and almost all the equipment we bought is somewhere between a very little use and utter junk. Uh, I think we uh, learned some incredibly um, false lessons from operating in Af Afghanistan. I'll give you one, um, uh, we, we, you know, which is a very, very broad lesson. We operated in uncontested airspace for 20 years. Uh, it was the easiest thing in the world, militarily, for a fighter, a fighter pilot, a bomber pilot, to circle his machine at 15,000, 18,000 feet um, in you know, the clear and unbelievably beautiful, sometimes blue skies above Afghanistan, talk to a joint terminal attack controller down on the ground, discuss where the weapons had to go, um, discuss you know, what the timeline was and so forth. Uh, you know, frankly, most children's, most most young people's game machines are a lot more violent and have a lot more urgency than that. But the idea that we can take those tactics, even most of that technology, and apply that against China or against Russia, it, you know, that's uh, delusional, I think, if people believe that. We won the big data war. We won the AI war. We won about 18 years ago. The problem is we just lost the only war that mattered. So big data and AI doesn't win wars like this. Um, good luck proving that it's going to win uh, unless something else very different happens against China or Russia either, because they will actually be out to attack us rather than just playing very, very passive indeed. So I am, I'm worried that, you know, two decades of uncontested airspace, fly wherever you want, whenever you want, in the helicopter of your choice, uh, and and so forth. That has given some armies, the British Army in particular, some astonishingly uh, false lessons and equipment that has very little utilisation unless we do something else like this again. And in the aftermath of this, I think putting together a coalition uh, for uh, nation building, nation reconstruction, I can't see it happening. Um, I, I would uh, one, one thing I want to uh, follow up on, uh, though, is didn't we sacrifice a generation of the kind of modernization that we that could have gone to better preparing for China? I mean, isn't that one of the reasons you could argue the four trillion dollars that went into Iraq and Afghanistan sap resources away from the long range strike weapons and other things we could have been investing in as nations? I mean, it, didn't didn't Europe actually skip a generation or two of otherwise high end military modernization that ended up going to urgent operational requirements because um, all the nations of Europe were engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan and had to suddenly re-gear for equipment that they would not have otherwise bought. Yes, but I don't think that the uh, political or military urgency was there that would have diverted that money to uh, to spend on high-end uh, high warfighting and high-end threats. I don't think the perceived threat from Russia emerged until inside the last decade. And China, um, you know, you are a notable exception. Uh, in terms of recognizing the, the threat from uh, China, and uh, you deserve huge kudos for that. But I don't think that 
budgets in Europe, budgets in the US, that there was anything like a consensus uh, about a Chinese threat, even five years ago. Um, you know, sacrificing, I mean, we probably sacrificed a generation of modernization. Isn't it better just to junk the stuff and then to move on rather than having having done two levels of up, let's, let's assume two levels of upgrade, I think probably more like one, uh, that we would still be having to upgrade now. I, I'm worried less about that actually, but what I am worried about is that culturally, our militaries and, uh, and our politicians have drawn some dreadfully false lessons from this whole process. They've drawn some false lessons also about uh, alliances and uh, you know coalitions and, and how and, and uh, or perhaps they're not false lessons, but they've certainly drawn some lessons, and those are going to make life much much harder going forward. I'm going to come back to false um, lessons in a, in, a, in a moment. I want to get Richard in. Richard, uh, your sense, right? I mean, because we were also anticipating, you know, people were uh, uh, anticipating, uh, you know, sort of uh, Afghan air carriers at some point, you know, they're going to be back. Um, okay. Uh, you know, give, give, us, give us your sense on, on what's been picked up, right? Because from an unmanned aircraft standpoint, um, I know General Atomics Aeronautical Systems is one of our sponsors, right? That was certainly a capability that was advanced. Uh, and indeed, folks are trying to see how they fit into manned and unmanned grids in, in the future. I think we've done a better job at integrating some of that technology uh, and advancing the state of the unmanned art uh, and the autonomous art that could prove to be useful in, in the future. But Richard, I want to sort of get your take on you know, what you think, you know, any thoughts you have at this moment? Yeah, quite a few. Um, you know, the biggest thing, I completely agree with Sash, but I also agree with you, Vago. I think we've sacrificed a generation uh, in terms of weapon is weaponry and, and whatever else in and, and, and tactical development and strategic thinking to cope with what proved to be a doomed sideshow. You know, I, I mean, it, it, about 13 years ago, it's buried somewhere in my website around 2008. I wrote a piece saying, have we thought this through? It was, I called it the coin delusion, counterinsurgency delusion. Basically, we're killing the F-22 because you've got critics out there saying, well, it has no use whatsoever in Afghanistan and other complete nonsense. People had a just a total strategic amnesia and decided that somehow this was important. And it reminds me, uh, not, not just me, but everybody, the whole Vietnam thing. It, it, it wasn't the right or the wrong. It was, hey, have you thought about the Soviet threat? Because it looks like, it looks like Vietnam is just a massive diversion. And it sure looks like that here. Now, another thing that uh, is not like Vietnam is that you know in 1975 some Vietnamese forces made valiant last stands like very impressive you know when history is written was written it, it became pretty clear that there were units that fought quite bravely that doesn't appear to be the case here in other words we spent 20 years building up exactly nothing except a flimsy collection of tape and, and drywall and the whole concept of advice and support you know a small stiffener force of trainers and, and special forces and of course 40,000 foot air power and whatever else could you know somehow galvanize a force that doesn't want to fight or has is led by people who don't want to fight or whatever else that's complete nonsense I, I, the whole thing was just um, a delusion pure and simple and I can't help but wonder what this means for getting back to our purpose and all of this of course what it means for the markets for that sort of equipment that sort of you know 
basic version helicopter, uh, light attack aircraft, turboprop light attack aircraft, you know, Embraer and other folks were, you know, looked at this market very seriously. You know, it, the C-27J folks, you know, sort of light tactical transport, all of it was catering to this mission rather than the more strategic requirements you see in the Pacific. So I, I can't help, I, I hope we draw the conclusion that you know, <laughs> never again will we, we be sucked into a strategic sideshow that involves kidding ourselves and arming our military with weapons that are completely inappropriate for real world geostrategic uh, confrontations. Um, I, I uh, want to point out that, um, you know, th there are many who will say, well, wait a minute, right? Our uh, involvement there did uh, forestall other uh, terror attacks that might have been coming. We gained valuable uh, intelligence. There are those who counter argue that was part of it, but actually we've built a broader global surveillance state um, that uh, that does a much better job tracking those sorts of things and, and stopping them. I mean, we'll see certainly what happens uh, after because the Taliban have not renounced Al-Qaeda uh, and uh, I'm not even sure they fully renounced ISIS either, even though they continue to fight ISIS, right? I mean, the Taliban and the ISIS don't necessarily always have the best relationship. And so we'll see what happens when uh, and if uh, Afghanistan, I think it's more of a question of when, uh, becomes another sort of terrorist uh, haven, ultimately. I think this notion the Taliban only care about Afghanistan, I think, is a misnomer. They'll, they'll I think, be fairly flexible in hosting other uh, extreme groups. Um, one point I would add, according to Afghans, is we force them for our own industrial reasons to buy our military equipment as opposed to military equipment that they were comfortable with. They, we relied on our contractors to support them. And when we withdrew, our contractors withdrew as a consequence, they got stuck with a whole bunch of high-end military equipment that they couldn't necessarily use uh, and was not as, as, as um, you know, it, it, it's great to have an H-60 but if reports are true, you can't fly that H-60 because you don't have the contractor support for it. Uh, it you know, it's okay. It's, it's not altogether that useful. Um, yeah, but hang on, uh, if I'll get many, but be all that useful to the Taliban. Uh, they're going to be able to auction off that kit. You know, all those pictures of boxed, intact, pristine scan eagle UAVs that uh, seem, to, seem to have um, uh, been captured. Those are going to be auctioned off to the Chinese, the Russians, and everybody else that doesn't like us. The, the losses of, uh, in terms of, you know, we, we would give a lot to, um, uh, you know, take over an entire Chinese arsenal or an entire Russian arsenal. They've just got that from us because we left it behind. That's a, that, that, that actually is a huge loss militarily. Um, I uh, couldn't agree with you uh, more. And then you have to add to that all of the intelligence data that resides in every single Afghan government police department across the country, informants lists, all, all of that stuff. And all of that stuff has been captured uh, by, by the Taliban, uh, as well as other information. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, Sash, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure they're going to sell anything to the Chinese. I think they're going to give it to the Chinese because the Chinese actually have made it clear, I think, to the Taliban, that they don't really care. It's, and in fact, I think China, is, China uh, is, is likely, and Russia are likely to become sort of the power brokers in the country more than anything, in part because they're likely to be unmoved. I mean, the trouble with saying human rights matters to you as an administration and then not supporting human rights is everybody around the world uh, notices. 
Um, I want to quickly go around the horn with one question before before we move on. Um, Ron, I know you're likely uh, not going to be able to answer this, so I'll, I'll spare you. But but uh, Ron and Sash, do you think that this undermines the perception of the United States as a reliable ally worldwide? Because the administration says, no, that that's not the case, uh, that, you know, our allies and partners understand and that this is sort of a different thing. Um, is it a different thing or? You know, my view is the United States is just not ready for prime time on a number of different channels. We don't think things through. Uh, we don't do hard things well. We do hard things badly, ultimately. And everybody in the world, whether it's a friend or a foe, sees that. And that weakens our deterrent ability. Um, if we promise the Afghans, take these risks, work with us, we'll be there over the long haul. And then we somewhat abruptly sort of pull the rug out from a, under everybody, um, that has an implication. Sash and Richard, do, are there wider implications here? Frankly, you, you've, you've really nailed that. Uh, everybody's just going to think twice about going into another coalition uh, for a big nation rebuilding or a big, uh, you know, attack on, um, uh, uh, you know, or addressing a perceived threat. So, you know, who benefits from this? Iran, how likely is it now that um, uh, there's going to be any sort of coalition against Iran if they continue to, um, uh, you know, defy the terms of the JCPOA? Zero. Um, who feels, you know, who's sleeping worse from this? Taiwanese, probably, but actually almost anybody uh, who bounds the South China Seas, they're going to be worried about whether the US will turn up and stay the course. Uh, and anybody in... Um, North and Eastern Europe is going to worry about not just the US, but frankly about the UK as well. Uh, and you know, Germany and France are do, you know do they have the uh, you know the, the political willingness to see things through against Russia? Um, you know, it was funny. A friend of mine uh, uh, and I were talking about this, and I said, you know, this is no way for a great power to behave. And he said, no, this is exactly how great powers <laughs> behave. You're you're missing the point. Uh, abrupt departure, and I, I without I, I mean this as neutrally as possible, right? Twice the UK was involved in Afghanistan, uh, right? Whether it was in the the mid 19th century, whether it was in the early 20th century, and now again in the late. Uh, you know, in the in the 21st century, and, and they've all ended up in in withdrawal. Uh, it, it, it's it's deja vu all over again. It's deja vu all over again. Richard, I don't know. It it seems like a risk, but you know, our allies put up with us through Iraq, which was to me far more futile. Um, and indeed, I think the best quote about it was Iraq was the original sin of the Afghanistan invasion. In other words, what hope we had of succeeding in Afghanistan was destroyed when everything was taken away and transferred to Iraq. So it, they put up with us thus far. And I'll just come back to Otto von Bismarck's great quip that God favors fools, drunks and the United States of America. You know, somehow we pull through. Let me go, go br briefly to the wrong lessons learned, uh, Sash, if you can give us the short form of this, because now we're going to get on to talking about world markets. But give us give us your sense on what you think were the wrong uh, strategic military lessons that were learned as a consequence of this that will have to be unlearned. I have to say your defense secretary, Ben Wallace, is remarkably thoughtful uh, about this. But, um, you know, give us your sense. I tried to touch on some of it earlier. I think that operating in an environment that was, in the broadest strategic sense, unbelievably permissive. 
where the vast majority of the time the enemy could not return fire and prevent us from doing stuff. It was only really at the, you know, when it came down to direct fire or short range indirect fire that uh, there, w- there was a threat to us. And therefore, militarily, we have um, got a mindset. We, well, we've definitely got a mindset, which is there will be surveillance available to us. We've got a mindset that our radios, our communication systems will work. We've got a mindset that we can, we can command by chat. We can command by PowerPoint over eight, 9,000 miles. Uh, and that, um, uh, you know, whenever we want, we can, uh, you know, we can whistle up uh, air support, whether fixed wing or rotary, and it will be there uh, and, it, and it will do its job. Um, it's been very, very interesting. It's been very chastening watching um, military formations that have come back from Afghanistan, then re-rolling uh, for, um, you know, whatever the new life is. Uh, but, you know, in the case of the UK, it's uh, a big proportion of that for the land forces and their forces is uh, Northeast Europe. And they think in a way that is incredibly difficult to get them to switch off from. You know, they, they think as soon as one person is wounded, one person is injured, shut down everything, call in the uh, call in a helicopter, you know, get the medivac, sort it out, and so forth. Life Against the Russians is just not going to be like that. They expect to have, you know, a, a God's eye view of what's going on. Well, good luck with that. And they don't expect to be shot at, at or suffer from indirect fire. It's a, and those are incredibly corrosive uh, thought process to have. And those are up to two-star level at least in uh, a lot of European armies, because that is all that some of these armies have ever experienced. And most uh, European air forces have only ever flown at 15, 18, 20, 25, 30,000 feet and dropped stuff through the clear blue air. Uh, so good luck when you have to start fighting your way through a really sophisticated air defense uh, to, to get to do your job, because that's going to be a totally different life. And I think they're horribly unprepared for it. And uh, we should we should point out, right, China is, is going to be the same sort of uh, shooting match, uh, literally, and uh, with the added benefit of being sort of 10,000 miles uh, or, or more away with uh, sporadic basing. We're going to take a break for just a moment. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. All right, let's uh, let's get back to an assessment uh, of uh, the week. Ron, what was driving the market? Was Afghanistan moving any needles for folks? Obviously, L3 Harris also reported sort of walk, walk us through what the sort of needle movers for the week were from a Wall Street perspective. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a relatively quiet week. I mean, we're getting kind of in the tail of, of earnings season. Um, if, if you look at you know, the broader market, um, you know, the, the Dow is up a little over a percent. Uh, Boeing as a you know as a bellwether was kind of trading in line with uh, the Dow. Uh, the defense stocks were a little behind the Dow, but just you know kind of in the noise. Uh, Embraer had a very strong week. They reported very good numbers uh, late in the week. Um, very good in in like in particular and in, in relative to expectations. Um, and then um, uh, Virgin Galactic had a rough week. It was down almost twenty five percent on the week. I think on the news that um, uh, you know, Sir Richard Branson will be selling some of his holdings to fund some other things, I guess, namely his airline. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of a, it, it just sort of a, a bumping along week, kind of a quiet week. If you look at interest rates, they were kind of just you know bouncing around 
um, and we saw uh, 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 oil prices decline a little bit on the week, not a ton. And what did you make of uh, L3 uh, earnings uh, and uh, Boeing's decision to pull the Starliner off the launch pad? I mean, I, my, my view is always, hey, better you fix this than have an inf- another in-flight failure, uh, right? But I mean, we've been talking about this being a bellwether for the company. I mean, how did you interpret both of those? Yeah, so on the Boeing uh, side, yeah, a couple thoughts. One, it just kind of shows you um, how, how remarkable SpaceX is in doing what they did, um, one. Um, two, it gets back to this ongoing discussion we've had about Boeing and you know, how can I say you know, issues in, in their engineering ranks. And you know, this is your second try, you try to gotta get it right. And I guess, you know, destacking it isn't not getting it right, but it's not a launch either, right? So it's so somewhere in between. Um, so this just kind of you know points to you know, continuing engineering stuff going on at Boeing that they have to try to sort out. Um, you know, it doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies. Um, and, and then on, when you look at uh, uh, L3 Harris uh, numbers on the week, um, you know, they, they ended the week roughly in line with the, the rest of the defense group. So, you know, it was, I, I think if you look at their reporting, it was, you know, kind of about in line with what people were expecting. Uh, Sash, uh, let me bring you uh, into the conversation. Some of um, the most innovative companies in the UK, I think you can put Ultra uh, in that category, certainly. I mean, it's a company that every single time they brief you about something, you go, wow, that's brilliant. Um, Megat, another highly uh, sophisticated company and a very key part of the ecosystem. And even Babcock, right? I mean, one of the bigger sort of can-do companies, obviously the winner of the Type 31 uh, frigate contract, uh, which you've said uh, has gone well, and, uh, and a company that had uh, established a reputation for actually being able to deliver. What's going on with the entire UK defense uh, and aerospace ecosystem that appears suddenly to have gone from you know, doing what it does to complete flux as we bear down on uh, the first in-person DSCI? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's pretty surreal. It, it, it's sort of, it, it's like the sort of phrase of, of Admiral Beatty at, uh, at um, Jutland, you know, something's wrong with our damn ships today as battle cruiser after battle cruiser blows up. And the UK defence sector just seems to be for sale, or it seems to be being bid for. Um, so it was bid for by Parker Hannafin about three weeks ago, and this week there was a counterbid or the start of a counterbid by Transdime. You know, they're, and they're offering twice the price that Megit has traded at in the last eighteen months or so. So, you know, maybe Megit's just been wrongly priced, and the UK stock market doesn't understand how to price these businesses. Ultra, which is actually a you know, as you say, it's an incredibly innovative company. It's not been necessarily terribly cheap. Um, it's been uh, it's been relatively slow in terms of its uh, earnings the last couple of years, but it's it started to do a lot better. And, and Ultra then um, uh, is subject of a effectively a bid from Advent, the private equity group that uh, bought Cobham. And this week they started to be talk about whether there was going to be um, you know, given that all other UK small smaller UK defence companies are seem to be up for grabs. Um, Babcock, which is at a sort of low point, as the new management of David Lockwood and David Mellis, uh, the, the CFO, are turning things around, whether that becomes um, uh, vulnerable as well. Because, you know, if you buy Babcock, you're basically buying a huge proportion of the Royal Navy's uh, support, a big proportion of uh, the Royal Air Force's uh, flying training, and a big proportion of the UK, of the British Army's 
um, land support. It's, it's a very, very valuable franchise um, for what is still the, the largest defence budget uh, in Europe, but its share price is you know, about a third of what it was uh, three years ago. Uh, so it's a very, very old situation. Um, there is clearly a problem, which is that the UK stock market has got less good at valuing uh, or has been has not been prepared to give these companies a huge amount of credit for their for their longer term earnings and probably for their do we call it intrinsic value uh, or you know certainly some of their, their intellectual property um, but it's also an issue which is that U.S. companies have got a great deal of dry powder and are prepared uh, to to spend it abroad uh, so it's been an absolutely surreal uh, week in you know in in that respect. And speak to us about the other a bit of surreal as we uh, transition to a little bit of commercial aerospace conversation before we get back to uh, defense uh, in a moment. Uh, you traveled for the first time in 17, 18 months. You're in northern Italy. Uh, what are some takeaways as you make as you made that trip? Aside from concluding that northern Italy, uh, trans tra uh, traversing nor northern Italy uh, you could understand why it was such a challenge in 1943, but we digress. Go ahead. Flying uh, in Europe. This is the, 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 you know, these are European perspectives. And, you know, particularly um, not flying inside the European Union, because, of course, the UK is outside the European Union now, is pretty hard. Um, and, and I'll give you the, you know, here, here's the first challenge. When I land in Italy, I have to present them with a COVID test certificate of a test that has, been, has taken place no more than 48 hours ago. But the... Uh, tests that are available in the UK take, or, you know, the, typically they take 24 to 48 hours to do, so that there is this nail-biting experience of, will my test actually allow me to board the aircraft, A, B, and then to, uh, to get to the other end? Once uh, you are, you know, all of the flying is done uh, masked up, the loading-unloading takes a great deal of time. It, here's the interesting thing. British Airways runs one return flights to Rome a day. Um, Pre-pandemic, they'd have run five, six a day. Now that flight is on a triple seven, whereas historically they would reasonably, uh, you know, they would have uh, flown it using A320s or A319s or something. But availability of, of flights is down, so you can really see the tumbleweed uh, across the uh, tarmac at Heathrow. And actually, you know, um, uh, Fiumicino Airport in Rome was not a lot better. Very, very quiet indeed. So actually, the good news is you sail through um, uh, immigration. Uh, once you've produced a prodigious numbers of forms and so forth. But you know, did I enjoy the experience? No, it was much harder than uh, it used to be. Um, being masked up all the time is difficult. And the you know every single nation now has the opportunity to put up a, a bureaucratic barrier that makes uh, travel within, uh, within Europe harder than it need be. So, my, I mean, my takeaway would be it's expensive. You know, this... The cost of the COVID tests will double the cost of the flights. Um, and that is going to reduce propensity to travel. And propensity to travel is what fuels the, uh, the airline industry. So my feeling would be, yeah, everybody wants a summer holiday. Everybody's going for the sun, although our aircraft was only about 60% full. But are we going to see those you know, weekends away in you know, Budapest or Prague or Berlin or whatever in the autumn? going to be much harder to do, harder to organise, and that's going to take the, the froth off uh, the recovery that certainly some of the European low costs have had in the summer uh, as we go into Q3 and then Q4. Richard, uh, you've uh, patiently waited as we've uh, gone through uh, all of that. Um, give us 
uh, some sense on any of that, but also want to get your take on uh, Chinese uh, demand, uh, which is dropping, right? You, some, even before the pandemic, were saying something is going on in China, uh, and now we live through the pandemic, but now we're also seeing something is going on in China. What do you think all of it means? Yeah, and whatever think, else uh, you want to talk about, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, quite the grab bag. Um, yeah, I think you and I, I'm joining you in the Cassandra Club on China. You, know, I, you of course, for years were warning about the, the rise of the, of the Chinese threat. And as Sash has said, kudos to you for that. Uh, for years, I've been warning that the Chinese economy is not what it seems in terms of air travel or indeed aircraft. Uh, and in terms of their transition from effectively a market-oriented economy to one that's more of state-owned enterprise and, and actually the government tamping down on consumer demand, which appears to be the case. You know, the anti-corruption campaign that President Xi began about, uh, I believe, six or seven years ago appears to have morphed into a sort of, yeah, you know, we don't really like the tech sector. We don't like companies listed. We don't like rich people. And, you know, you, you as a consumer shouldn't really necessarily take that as evidence that you should get your Mao jacket to the dry cleaner. But on the other hand, you might want to slow down your consumption. And I think that might be a big part of what's going on in the background, because, you know, after years of double digit growth in 2019, things had fallen to mid to low single digit. And what you're seeing now is the rapid comeback that we saw in the domestic market last year and, and early this year, petering out and indeed declining a bit. And that's concerning. Some of it might be the crackdown uh, associated with the uh, emergence of the virus again, but a lot of it just might be, well, more and more people being held in detention uh, and all of it focused upon, well, the, the market economy. Uh, basically, there's no, no two ways about it. China is changing and not in a good way. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty concerned uh, about demand because, frankly, they own an awful lot of debts. And they have a, a, well, a very large financial position in the world jetliner industry that I'm also concerned about. Um, so at the very least, the idea that China is going to account for 25% of demand moving forward, that needs a rethink. And that's, that's a big area of concern of mine. Uh, in terms of the broader travel recovery, I, I got to admit, you know, uh, am I having second thoughts about 4Q22 recovery to 2019 RPK peak? Yeah, this Delta thing is clearly turning, you know, the wonderful open and free VAX summer into a uh, possibly dreadful VAX uh, fall or post-VAX post fall, whatever you want to call it, Delta fall. Um, so we're just going to have to see. Most people still think, seem to think this is going to play out over the next 10 weeks, depending upon how many people, well, do the right thing and get vaccinated. But we're just going to have to see. It's hard for me to be quite as optimistic as I was, uh, you know, even just a few short weeks ago. Um, and in terms of everything else that we've uh, we've been discussing, you know, uh, I completely agree with uh, with Sash and everyone that basically there are big lessons from Afghanistan. I would argue that the biggest is that surely versatile weapons of war, naval power, air power far more relevant for the long run, far more appropriate than small bits of kit, everything from MRAPs to, well, <laughs> umpteenth versions of the previous generation helicopters to whatever else. I, you know, I look at the army now and I wonder, 
will they be able to get their priorities to reinvent themselves with long range fires and with the future vertical lift program? Because clearly going from that counterinsurgency model to a big strategic presence model is incredibly expensive. The Air Force and the Navy, it's relatively easy to make that transition. It's what they've always done. But for the Army, that's another story. And that's going to be really interesting to watch. Every power has got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. If your forces need MRAPs, you have to field MRAPs while you also get F-22s because that's a different fight. That to me was the misnomer and the, the ace strategic behavior uh, that uh, we saw displayed. And, and I think uh, uh, Defense Secretary Gates uh, exhibited that, right? I mean, it was too much focused on we're never going to go to war, you know, in Asia again, uh, you know, and, and Mike Mullen had to go out there and reassure everybody that, yes, we would go to war uh, to, with them and then said the same thing. And Mike Mullen had to go to Saudi Arabia and reassure the Saudis that, yes, we would go to war in the event that they get attacked. So you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. And China's moves will impede its ability to make and maintain progress, right? I mean, this capitalism with the Chinese with Chinese characteristics is what was created this uh, juggernaut. The trouble is that the more you clamp down, the more the country gets destabilized, the more the country is destabilized, the more dangerous it gets in the short term. So that's the reason for me, the race to build up our deterrent capability is predicated on um, on, on a China becoming more dangerous, not less. So thanks very much for the kind words on my worry about China uh, for a long time. Ron, anything you want to add to the discussion about traffic and outlook? And I suspect, Sash, you may have uh, something to say about that as well. Uh, and if you guys want to talk about 737 India, <laughs> go ahead and do so. Take yeah, so I just quickly, just in light of time, um, you know, in kind of my own orbits of stuff I do, I was supposed to attend a, uh, uh, the UP Summit in um in Bentonville, Arkansas, is a, an event that is a kind of invite-only event that focuses largely on uh, vertical lift and EV to all that kind of thing. And it got canceled because of um, the, the current situation with uh, the Delta variant, and they're moving it out to from the fall to the spring. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. But um, you know, kind of to Richard's point, it's you know the, the Delta variant. I think is you know a little bit of a wild card here. And what it's going to mean for um, you know the returns of travel, and, and interestingly enough, I got an approval from the bank to go go to this thing. So it wasn't you know B of A that said I couldn't do it. They just canceled the event, and you know actually canceled is the wrong word, but they moved the event from the fall to the spring. So um, I, I would imagine we'll see some more of that going on um, as we work our way through autumn. Sash, I haven't got a great deal more to add to traffic because I mean Richard's. Um, uh, you know, description of chi China was the market that really moved uh, in the last week. And, you know, when your capacity is down a third, um, there is something very, very wrong um, uh, with, you know, in, in terms of how, how we analyze and forecast the Chinese market, because that, that one really, um, you know, to have that, that much of a step down in such a short period of time is, a, is a, I you know, think a big concern. And Richard, uh, close us out. Recertification, um, I believe a 737 MAX, uh, according to the Flight 24 radar, uh, you know, there was a flight uh, of an airplane in China. So that's uh, potentially positive. And India is moving toward MAX recertification as well. So to give us an update. Yeah, you know, these are enormously um, important export markets. Matter of fact, uh, if China really is softening, then, well, India is the biggest single one we have left in terms of uh, emerging growth markets. So progress towards the last two places where the MAX has not been recertified, absolutely essential, especially if Boeing is going to execute on its ramp, uh, because a lot of these planes are indeed for India and 
probably China. We don't quite know because a lot of them are under the undetermined category. Uh, but certainly positive news that both uh, both markets are moving uh, towards recertification. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, hope you guys have a great week and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. As always, Vago, a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much, Vago. Yeah, really appreciate it, Vago. Thanks. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.